The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. Think of this show in this way. Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern had a child, and that child grew up to have a podcast about building science. This is the opposite of that. Here's Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, which our goal to help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians. Well, today we veer a little off the technical path in this episode as we discuss with Brian Orr, yes, my mentor, Brian Orr, mentor in podcasting, his educational and missionary work in Haiti. As for the past two years, Brian's led a small team of volunteers to first scope out and recently, this is November 2018, begin delivering basic trade education to native Haitians as young as eight years old. He's focusing on mainly on the topics of electrical. And you can learn from this episode how he chose what he's doing, why he's doing it. There's a lot of great background to this. I think it's very interesting. We'll hear how he addresses the logistical, practical, and communications challenges he encounters with this very systematic approach in a way similar to the way he breaks down his technical and business challenges on an everyday basis. So please listen up as we listen to Brian Orr talk about his missionary work in education in the country of Haiti. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Really happy to have here with me today the world-renowned dad joke expert. Can you please introduce yourself? <laughs> I go by the dad joke expert whenever I'm at a conference. It's, it's one of those things, it's sort of like Banksy, where people don't know my <laughs> real name. <laughs> they just say, is that the dad joke expert? You know, they kind of whisper and then they tap my shoulder and then they faint when they find out it is actually me. But in my real life, I go by the name Brian Orr. Ah, okay. Brian Orr, so do you have a t-shirt that says dad joke expert? <laughs> I don't, although I think this episode may inspire that. So I think that may be in the HVAC school store here shortly. Great. So Brian's a guy that got me into podcasting. Give me your thoughts on why you asked me to do this. No, I mean, the reason why I asked you to do it is because you're uniquely qualified to do a podcast on building science and HVAC instrumentation and key processes in our industry. Because for those of you who maybe don't know Bill's history, he doesn't like to talk about himself a lot on the podcast, but Bill has been soup to nuts, start to finish in the industry from an engineering standpoint. And then as somebody who is in the marketplace, providing tools to the industry, it makes a lot of sense that you would be talking about these things. And also, I think the key component to anybody who's going to be successful at podcasting and isn't going to give in to pod fade, as we call it, which is sort of you make seven episodes and then you disappear, is that you have to be passionate about the topic that you're speaking in about because inevitably it's hard to find an audience. It's hard to push through when you get busy with regular life. And most people, if they're not really passionate about what they're talking about, they're going to fade. And what I see with you, Bill, is that you're a guy who is excited to talk about this stuff even when uh, hardly anybody's listening. <laughs> that's one of the key things. I mean, I'm not saying, obviously, there's plenty of listeners. That's not a really bad, sorry. What I mean is, is that it's one of those things where you, you get together in a dinner conversation and you start talking about combustion or airflow measurement or whatever, and you get excited about it, or you get excited about talking about building science or, or business or whatever. And they're kind of nerdy traits, I guess, but all of us who end up sticking it out in podcasting or any sort of endeavor like this, it requires that internal drive to do it. And you have that. And, and to me, that's the biggest thing. It's not having an amazing podcast voice or any of that stuff. It's just that you're excited about it and that comes through. And I think this has been a pretty awesome ride. Thank you. I appreciate all of those words. And I really didn't set myself up for flattery, but I think you just <laughs> did that. I think also 
in addition to knowing the topic, just having a curiosity. And that's what I've been exploring really with my podcast is just a curiosity about things. So let's come back to today's topic. And I think this involves one of the words you just used about me, which is passionate. You've put together the last two years, a trip to Haiti to help people. Can you explain just sort of a nutshell, what are you doing there? What have you been doing there? We've gone down twice. The first time was more of a fact-finding mission. We did a little bit of work, but it was mostly a fact-finding mission. And then the second time, we finally kind of did what I was hoping to do, which is to bring trades education to Haiti. And the reason for that, which I'll just briefly address here, the reason why I wanted to do that is because in a place like Haiti where there's so much foreign aid brought in and where there's so much need, sometimes what can happen is we can give people a lot of fish without teaching them how to fish as the old adage goes. And I always want to be part of providing people with something that allows them to transform their own lives. And I didn't know what that was going to look like when I first went down. And since that time, I've partnered with some really good people who have helped show me what that looks like. And so the work that we're doing is going down and providing educational resources and working with people of all ages, but primarily youth, young people anywhere from maybe the eight years old up to their mid-20s would be the kind of the target demographic and providing them with some just basics education, which is the same thing that I do on HVAC school every day. But in this particular case, I'm focusing more on energy and electrical theory because that is a huge need in Haiti. I mean, before we can even think about refrigeration or air conditioning, we've really got to do some things to help build a, an understanding of electricity and, and build a work on the infrastructures that surround that. And you had faith that your trip your fact-finding trip would lead to something. You didn't know what it was. You just expressed that. So you really are a man of faith, and I want that to be stated, and for sure people know that. And I don't know how comfortable you feel about talking about that, but I think people really need to know that. That resounds in all the work you do, the things that you do. Yeah, and I feel completely comfortable with it. When I went to Haiti the first time, it wasn't like, like, oh, shucks, this seems like a good thing to do. Let's do it. Now, I mean, there's a calling there. I'm always careful not to over-spiritualize things. I'm a very practical person, and it's not like I had a voice from heaven or something, but I've always, I don't know when it started, probably in my early teens, I've always had a sense that I would end up doing some things in Haiti, and it really wasn't external. I mean, I've met some people who worked in Haiti, but it's more just really practical. You see a place of great need. You see a place that where the work is hard. And I'm always attracted to places where the work is hard or to environments where the work is difficult because that's where you can have the greatest impact. I also have always been called to the long game. Ever since I was a little kid, I've always enjoyed building things that took a long time to build and that weren't easy. And so Haiti just made a lot of sense to me. And so when I went there, it wasn't like I was going there to say, let's see. I was going there to say, how are we going to do this? Where are the areas of need and how can we make this happen? Where are the challenges? And the first fact-finding mission, I came back with more challenges than opportunities probably. But again, that's what always attracts me. And absolutely, there's a spiritual side to it. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for the fact that I believe that we have a creator who loves us all and that love that he has for these people in Haiti, he allows me to experience as well, which is a real blessing. That makes me smile. Let's get down to a topic of practicality. What was it like to travel there? <laughs> Did you see some of the videos that I posted on Facebook? Yes. Right. And that's what I want you to describe. Give an audio review. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges there. A couple things. First, I grew up hearing that Haiti was this barren, desolate place where they had cut down all the trees and it was just like basically everybody sitting in a big giant mud puddle. And maybe that was just the picture in my head but that's the sense that I got. And it's not like that. I mean, there's actually some reasonably good roads in Haiti. 
it's a beautiful place. I mean, it really is a beautiful place. It's a tropical island. If, so if you think of the Dominican Republic and you look at pictures of that, it's the same island. It's really a pretty place. The oceans are beautiful, but there's garbage everywhere. I mean, in the ocean, you can go miles and miles out and there's just islands of garbage off the coast of Haiti, which is very depressing to see. Even when I first flew in, it's like it's one of the first things you notice. The roads, the traffic is absolutely positively insane. It's like nothing you have ever experienced. I mean, I grew up in Orlando and we used to always complain about the traffic here. And we would even talk even more like, oh man, Miami, now that is crazy. Miami is terrible. And so that's where we flew out of was Fort Lauderdale. Literally when I got in my car after coming back from a week in Haiti and driving around, riding around in Haiti, it was like, I think Fort Lauderdale was the most beautiful place I had ever seen. It was like the garden spot of the United States because I had that contrast of how crazy the traffic was in Haiti. So yes, I mean, traveling in Haiti is a huge problem. You pretty much have to fly into Port-au-Prince. That's the only international airport. And there may be one in Cap Haitian as well. I'm not sure that's in the north, but we were working in the south. So you fly into Port-au-Prince and then it's literally a four and a half hour drive from Port-au-Prince to where we were working in just the craziest roads. I mean, the way that I explain it, that's probably the easiest way to get your head around is that you know how like once a month you'll have an incident on the road where you think to yourself, I could have just been in an accident. I could have just died. That happens on the road regularly, but it's like once a month. In, in Haiti, that happens like every 30 seconds. Every 30 seconds, you either almost hit a cow or a person or knock a guy off a motorcycle or it's, it's just a constant state of insanity. And so everybody just adjusts. The way they drive is really aware driving but also just totally insane. Someone from the U.S. going to Haiti, you cannot drive yourself. You don't even think about driving yourself for any distance in Haiti, renting a car and doing that. It's, it's crazy. You guys didn't drive the team you took down there? So I'm fortunate. We have an employee, a service technician who works in our commercial division who is Haitian. His name's Israel. And so he hadn't been back to Haiti for six years, but he was very comfortable driving. So he did a great job and kept us safe as well as drove the way that you have to drive there. What do you think causes this insane amount of garbage? Is there a cultural or a governmental or what's your feeling about that? There's so many different elements to it. I mean, so it starts with think of a place where there's essentially no tax base. I mean, because how could there be? There's so much poverty. The populace is so quick to riot. Well, how can you tax? And so if you can't tax, how can you provide government services? And if you can't provide government services, then how do you pick up the garbage? So it's this trickle down effect that occurs. And so where does most of the money come from? Well, most of it comes through foreign aid and through essentially legalized extortion. I mean, the government is very corrupt, but they don't view it as corruption. They kind of view it as survival. And I understand that actually. It's like, how are you going to make any money? Well, you make it by foreigners coming in and basically getting anything you can out of them. And as an American in Haiti, you experience that nonstop. I mean, it's essentially continuous extortion one way or another. It really, you can't blame it, but how do you fix it? And that's a really tough question. And my stance on it is going to be, I think you got to start from the bottom up versus from the top down. A lot of people will try to fix from the top down. That's very political. Obviously, they don't want to hear that from Americans. Haiti is the only country that was actually formed out of a successful slave revolution. And so they have a strong sense of that independence. And I think that's rightfully so. They revolted against the French. So there's a very strong sense of they don't want white people coming in. I mean, to be blunt, they don't want white people from other countries coming in and forcing change down their throats, which to me is completely understandable. And so it's a very delicate landscape. You have to tread very lightly. And from a governmental standpoint, yeah, it's tricky. I actually don't think like, for example, their current president, his name is escaping me. Moise, I can't remember his last name. It's escaping me. They call him the banana man because I guess he had some interest in bananas or something. I don't know. I think he's a really good guy. I actually believe that he cares about the country, but he still has a reputation of being corrupt because, again, you don't have a tax base. So how do you make this all work? 
Speaking of the government, what kind of clearances did you need? Did anything have to be sanctioned or approved? Or were you at all, I don't mean like famously recognized, but recognized or needed to be recognized to do these kind of things? No, I didn't. It's something that I want to move towards. In general fashion, you know this about me. I usually build the plane while I'm trying to fly it. I just sort of jump <laughs> off the cliff and then try to get the parts put together while I'm flying. and Or do an oil change at 85 down the highway. That's what I like to think of. Sure. That'd be another example. Speaking of doing oil changes while you're working, that's why I have the field piece uh, vacuum pump, because I can change the oil on the fly. You can get it to True Tech Tools. <laughs> you go. Knock that one in there. <laughs> nice. Anyway, so yeah, I didn't have any government sanction. You don't need to. So what I was doing, I got stopped when I brought in all these training materials. Yeah. And they said, what on earth is all this for? And I said, I'm teaching kids. That is the truth. That's what it's for. And one of the officials said, uh, how are you teaching kids when you don't speak Haitian? And so I just pointed out Israel and Israel speaks Haitian. So Haitian Creole. So they were fine. I think they're, the country, the people who I ran into, whether they were government officials or whether they were church leaders or different people who we interacted with, were all really excited about what we were doing because it was so different than what they're used to. And because it was also everything we did was in their language, in the language that they're most comfortable with, as opposed to French, which we can talk about in a second. They were all very positive. I got no resistance on that front at all. And so I'm going to try to use a little bit of the momentum that we built and some of the relationships that we built there to hopefully get a little bit more government sanction so that we have a little, it's a little easier to get in and out. There's some travel challenges and things that would be nice to have a little bit more liberty, but we'll see. There is the monetary, their financial aspect. How was this carried out? I mean, I self-funded a portion of it. Also at Kalos, we do a monthly give where we find a cause that we support as a company, either that's doing work in our local community or it's local people doing work abroad or elsewhere. So in this case, obviously, my brother and I fell into that second category as well as Israel. So it was funded a lot by Kalos. The actual creation of the little book that we made in Creole was all funded by Kalos and that was chosen by the employees. So we put it out there for several months and actually some other causes were chosen first, but then eventually it was perfect timing. It was chosen as the cause of the month for Kalos and actually in August or September before we left. So we used the funds that were gathered from that, which is a percentage of our revenue in the service department to fund the trip and fund the materials. Excellent. You talked about time of year you went in September. October. October, right. Oh, no, wait. No, was it November? No, it was October. October. Yeah. I thought it was right before Thanksgiving. Yes, actually, you're right. It was the first week of November. Yeah. And it's funny because like that was only a month ago and I still it shows how bad my memory is. <laughs> I'm losing it. No, it shows there's been many things going on in between now and then. What's the weather like down there? What's the climate like and the buildings, the structures, what the people most commonly live in? Yeah. So the weather is very tropical. Again, you think of any Caribbean island, it's in the same category. It's warm, obviously. So during the day, it was in the 90s when we were there most days and dipped down into the 70s at night. It's very humid, obviously. It's that way pretty much year round. They have a rainy season and a dry season. Although my understanding was, is that when we were there it was supposed to be the rainy season and it was unseasonably dry. And so they were kind of worried about that and what that was going to do to some of their crops. That was a little bit of a concern, but the weather is pretty, it's, it's tropical. It's a pretty place. From a structure standpoint, they build in a very particular way and it's consistent across the country. They build with concrete block that they make there and they use very loose aggregate for everything. So very big stones. So even in making their blocks, their blocks are very crumbly. Um, they're not like our blocks. And so they have a lot of issue with the decay of things that they build with the blocks that they make there. But they make everything block concrete structures uh, with concrete roofs. Concrete flat roofs are pretty much the standard there. 
which I think they just do it that way. And I don't think they necessarily always should. That's a conversation for <laughs> another time. It's a very specific conversation, but they build it with these concrete flat roofs and they like it because it gives them a place to put solar panels. They can hang out up there or whatever they want to do because it's like you get nice cool breezes in the evenings. And so it's a nice place for a little extra storage. Maybe it's where they tend to keep water tanks. And so if they do have any electricity, then they'll pump water intermittently from a pump up into a tank on the roof. And then they'll use gravity to feed water into the spaces that's very consistent amongst hotels and houses and everything. So when you see buildings, that's very common. But then there's also just houses that are made of sheet metal. There's shiny sheet metal everywhere and uh, just kind of corrugated sheet metal just lined up and laid it over the roof and then that all the way down to essentially cardboard shanties and Port-au-Prince, which Port-au-Prince has segments that are reasonably nice. And then there's like, for example, the hotel that I stayed in the last night when I flew out was as nice as any hotel you'd stay in in the US. Service was great, food was great, all that kind of stuff. But then you go right outside of that and it's complete chaos and squalor. So there's that level of diversity even in a place like Port-au-Prince. You did mention if they have electricity. So electricity is intermittent. Is that because of uh, metering or monitoring or unreliability in the network and the grid? Do you have an understanding for that? Yeah, I mean, I have somewhat of an understanding. Obviously, the Haitian electrical grid was much better prior to the two natural disasters that they had. So they had, I think it was in 2010, they had the earthquakes and that was horrible. Maybe it was 2008, maybe in that area. And so the earthquakes that hit Port-au-Prince decimated Port-au-Prince. Port-au-Prince is by far the largest city. It's enormous. And it has, I think the number I heard was like 2 million people live there. So it's a huge city and uh, got hit by this earthquake and there was mass destruction, destroyed the grid. And then after that, then Hurricane Matthew came through and did the whole thing over again. So there is, there are power lines and there are areas that they're actually pretty well built. It seems like a, a fairly good structure. A lot of foreign aid has come in to assist with that, but it's super intermittent. I mean, it's like the missionary we were staying with, he had power from the utility, something like six hours out of the week we were there. So it's not reliable at all. The reasons for that, I think they don't have people to do the work. I think they just, they have a lot of issues with the grid and they don't have people to actually deal with it. And I'm sure from an energy standpoint, I'm not even sure what their power generation, what method they use for power generation, whether it's coal or what it is. But I imagine that's got to be a challenge because they do lack natural resources as well. So the answer is absolutely solar, but they don't use solar farms or wind farms in Haiti currently. So that's the direction it has to go because that's the resource that they do have access to. You mentioned a technology topic there, solar. What about internet, phone? I sort of know the answer here, but I'd like to explain what you encountered on both trips. Yeah. So first trip I went, I had no internet and no phone. And so I thought that Haiti had no internet and no phone. Well, I was talking to the missionary who we were working with and he said, oh, no, it's fine. I'm like, okay, so what do you do? He's like, no, you got to get a special SIM card. So you got to swap out your SIM card. I'm like, okay, that seems sketchy. So this time I got to the airport and I did it. I just, as I was walking to the airport, I stopped at one of these booths and handed them my phone and which was kind of scary, but I handed them my phone and five minutes later, they swapped the SIM out. How much data do you want? Oh, I'll take five gigs. Okay, no problem. 25 bucks. And I'm the 25 bucks and I had internet and well, phone was a little sketchy and I think it was something to do with the settings in my phone. But internet, I had just as good as I have here in the US essentially the entire time I was there, which to me was very surprising. I was under the impression after the first trip that it was sketchy and that it wouldn't work. But after that, I realized they actually have really good internet coverage cellularly. They have two different big companies, Natcom, and I, I don't remember the other one, but yeah, Digicel and Natcom. Their advertisements are everywhere. They're like the only two high rises <laughs> in Port-au-Prince are those two companies right next to the hotel I stayed in. 
And yeah, so that's no problem at all, actually. And in fact, that kind of got me thinking maybe there could be an industry for maybe phone support, that sort of thing in that marketplace, like there are in a lot of other emerging countries. Another technology topic, but sort of basic and coming back to the reason why you're there, electricity, electrical wiring, voltages, safety. Can you riff about that a little bit? Safety is not something that is considered in Haiti. It's akin to probably what you see in some of the social media posts about India, where you see people bare feet working on electrical wires and they got things everywhere. The difference would be is that India has a pretty good education system. So I shouldn't say a good education system, but there's a high level of education in India. In Haiti, there isn't that level of awareness. And so they're working on things with almost no understanding of what they're doing. For example, One group that I spoke at, there were some guys in their 20s there, and they consistently kept asking me specific questions about how you can get electricity from the utility, like how you can connect to the high voltage power distribution lines. (laughs) And that's what they came into that class wanting to know, basically how to steal electricity from the utility. Which chapter was that in your book? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Quick and easy ways to steal from the utility. No. And so that makes it clear that there's a lot of attempts at that sort of thing. And there's a real misunderstanding about electricity. And one thing that you find there is that voodoo or voodoo, however you say it there, is that thinking, while there's not very many people who actually practice it as a religion, the thinking of things being just sort of magic, you don't really understand the science behind it, is pretty common. And so it was kind of cool to break through and get them thinking a little bit more about the science of things. And they got really excited when they were able to understand something, even a simple concept about electricity. But as far as the safety side goes, yeah, I mean, it's extremely unsafe. And a big piece of that is that there's just a really a lack of awareness from the average rank and file person who lives there about what's going on. And the electrical installations reflect that. It's just if you've got number 12 wire and that's what you want to connect, that's what you're going to connect to the transformer that's feeding your house. And then you're going to try to run a pump on it or anything else. Even the house we were staying at, they had three, I think it were number 12 or number 10 green wires that were connected back to the main transformer at the road by just twisting the wires together. And you had literally bare wire, probably in half of an inch away from a razor wire fence that topped the big metal or big concrete wall that was around the facility. So literally the idea that you don't want to even touch high voltage metal copper that carrying conductors to something like a fence like that or a razor wire like that. There's not really an understanding of that there. So you just mentioned the razor wire surrounding the facility. How about personal safety when you were down there? Can you talk about that? This is an opinion. And so the Haitians have a very different perspective on this, but this is just my perspective. You drive around and there are walls with razor wire and barbed wire around everything, around houses, around businesses, or people with shotguns, short barrel shotguns everywhere and guarding the gas stations and everything else. Now, if you pay attention, you'll notice that most of them don't have ammo in their guns. There's a lot of fear there, but you really don't have a lot of violence. You got to be careful here. Of course, it's not like Center Hill, Florida, (laughs) where I live. It's definitely less safe than that, but they don't seem like a violent people. They do a lot of demonstrations and rioting where they destroy stuff, which is a bummer, but you just don't get that feel of being unsafe. At least I don't at all. I never felt unsafe, even in situations where people were asking me for money or whatever. I never felt that way. And in doing research, there really aren't, you don't have a lot of issues of foreigners coming in and dying or being severely injured in Haiti. It's not a common thing at all. And for a country that's as populated as it is and as many people as you come in contact with, I think the fear there goes back to unscientific thinking. I think it's a lot of its legend, a lot of its uh, stories that are passed from person to person about horrible things that have happened. And so everybody has a fearful 
view of others, but I don't think it represents the reality because in that place, there's not a lot of drug usage. It's not like some other Caribbean countries where there's heavy drug usage. There's not even a lot of alcohol drinking. It's not a place that's affected by those sorts of chemicals. And when you talk to people, they have a sense of morality, like from a spiritual standpoint, the name of Jesus, the Bible is really well known and understood in that place. And so it's not like there's a complete disconnect from what's right and wrong there at all. There's a disconnect from how to get from point A to point B economically, for sure, or like how to provide for your family. Those sorts of things are, there's a challenge there because in a lot of cases, there's not opportunity, but it doesn't feel like an unsafe place. And so for anybody who's considering going there, which I think is maybe part of the people might hear this and wonder, I would not feel like it's unsafe in that way. The reason why I wouldn't want to take my kids there without coming up with some better ideas mostly is the traveling part because the odds that you're going to die on the roads and there's no hospitals and there's no ambulances to do anything about it if you did get into an accident, that's the part that's most disconcerting more than actually being afraid of somebody you're shooting you or harming you. Yeah, it's more about the stability of services and availability. Yeah. There's a good chance you might get robbed. That's probably a pretty good chance. So I wouldn't like take anything that you're afraid of having stolen because there's a good chance somebody might point a gun that may or may not have bullets in it at you. But I don't think that violence is a huge concern. And that doesn't just come from me. I talked to others about this and Israel kind of has the same perspective. There's just a lot of fear. And that's what drives a lot of what you see. Because if you were to drive around and you were to see the razor wire and the concrete walls, you would think, oh my gosh, I mean, this place must be insane. But I don't think that's the case. Let's go back to, you mentioned you created a book. You had to first come up with the material for the book and then have it translated and then have it printed. Do you have future plans for that book? Or are you going to continue sending them down or make a repeat trip? What's the next step for this kind of educational process you've kicked off? Sure. So I did it in the same way that I do everything, which is just decide to do it and then do it. The next version of it is going to be different. I'm going to make uh, some changes to it for sure before I do another printing. We gave away everything that we printed in the first printing, which was I'm trying to remember how many we did. I think it was around 400, something like that. And so those are all handed out. We brought those down in our luggage, which by the way, when you fly with that luggage that heavy, those bags cost you a lot more. I didn't think about that. So there, there's a little quick tip. Think about bringing heavy things into foreign countries. But yeah, so we gave out all of those. I'm going to make some adjustments based on what I learned in doing the teaching. So the way we taught it was we handed out the books to everybody and then we essentially walked through the books and then we had them do some hands-on experiments. I actually got my hands on a bunch more of the experiment kits that I brought down, which are just little electrical basics kits, and they were really good, and they love them. They're really popular. You saw everyone from, we had one uh, lady who was probably in her 50s who was wiring up an electrical circuit, and when she turned that switch on and the little fan motor came on, I mean, she was so excited to kids who are eight years old doing it. And so, yeah, that was really popular. So I want to couple those two things together. The book that's very practical. It's written in Haitian Creole versus French. Most of their schooling is taught in French. And that's not what they speak day in and day out. So there's always this disconnect between what they speak and, and the French that they end up having to learn, at least to a certain extent, to get through school. So translating it into Haitian Creole makes it essentially one of a kind. There's not really anything else like it. And it's definitely written to a very common denominator sort of thing that everybody can understand and hopefully get value from. But I'm going to go back and make some adjustments to that. And then we're going to pair it together with those kits. And we're probably going to focus more the next time we go on teaching at trade schools, because I realized we taught at one trade school that was an electrical or purported to be an electrical trade school, but really didn't have any resources at their disposal. And one of the comments, one of the young men, when we finished teaching at that trade school, I came up to Israel 
after we got done. And of course, because I can't speak the language, he said to Israel, I've been going to this school now for three months. And now finally, I learned about electricity, which was, again, it's sad, but it's also kind of cool to show that in just a two hour little was essentially a seminar. And we were able to actually get some excitement built into them. So that's what we're going to continue to do. We're going to continue to develop that book. That book, I'm also going to, I have an English translation version, because obviously that's how I wrote it in English. I'm going to go through and make some changes to it, um, tailor it more to the U.S. market, and I'm going to release that book for those who are interested in it because I had some people who went through it with their kids and enjoyed it. And uh, in fact, my son Jude, is he read it and is super excited. So he's got my electrical kit right now at home, and that's all he wants to do is play with that thing. How old is he? Jude is six. Six, wow. Yeah. So he's a smart kid, and he really likes it. He enjoys – he's read through the book probably 30 times. Jeez. <laughs> I want to share that with, because obviously my heart isn't just for Haiti and trades education. Everybody who knows me knows that. It's just that that's a place that really is in need of it. And I didn't know going in whether or not it would be received the way that it was. And it was received by the people who were in the little classes that we did so positively, I couldn't have expected any more. It surpassed my expectations as much as it could in every aspect of it, in their attentiveness to the teaching, and then also in their excitement and doing the experiments and their involvement. Everybody wanted to get their hands in and touch it and wire up the circuits and everything. It was really uh, heartening from that standpoint. And it represents for them what I think is probably one of the biggest opportunities in their country, which is to truly understand, especially solar energy, but energy and electricity in general. You said that there was a great amount of involvement and appreciation. How about on the flip side? How can we get involved, people listening to this, people that learn about what you're doing? is Do you have a, a way for that or a plan for that? Yeah, I have a plan for it. I don't have a strong way right now. So one of the first things that needs to happen in order to start to do this at scale is we need to have a good, consistent place for doing the trainings. And so the missionary that I worked with, it's an organization called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. They are a Christian organization. They do focus on discipleship, but they also are really excited about doing trades training. So not just electrical and refrigeration and those sorts of things, but also flat work and welding and concrete in general, just a lot of different skills. So they're going to couple those kind of two things together. So when they bring, especially young people in to their facility for discipleship, they're also going to teach them applicable skills. So that facility is something I'm excited about building. It's going to be built in a place that is far away from the city. It's a very rural environment. The people there are hardworking. It's clean. It's beautiful. They have clear running water. It's sort of a unique place. And the, what I like about it is the need is still very great there, but there's a lot of good partners there. There's a, a dairy farmer who moved down from Illinois he was a dairy farmer, but then he also had a refrigeration business and he built an entire dairy farm out there. And the purpose of it is so that they can bring their cows to be milked in his facility and then they can benefit from selling the milk. I mean, he is essentially creating the first milk market for farmers because currently they actually import powdered milk in this place, which is crazy because families will have their own cows, but they don't have a way to refrigerate the milk. And so it has to be drank essentially instantaneously. And there's all these challenges from a health standpoint when you don't have reliable electricity, when you don't have reliable milk processing facilities, that sort of thing. So he's already got all that down there. This is a stone's throw away from where they have the property and the wells in place to build this training facility. And again, it's the kind of place that you would want to go. It's the kind of place that you would want to spend time. It's quiet. It's beautiful. The people around are very friendly, which is a little different than Port-au-Prince. Port-au-Prince is very much, 
it's a city. So it's like the difference between New York City and upstate New York. So we're wanting to build the training facility in upstate New York, a place that's a little less helter-skelter, maybe not as much possibility of things being stolen, that sort of thing. We want to do that. That's kind of step one, how people can help with that. I shared a link on my personal Facebook and said, hey, you know, if you want to give a few bucks now, that's great. No pressure. We're going to have opportunities moving forward. I'm going to do some events, some live events where the proceeds will go towards this work, seminars. And I've always talked about doing a little conference. That's one thing. Another thing is I'm going to be putting together groups. So anybody who's interested in joining me to go down and do some training, feel free to just reach out to me and I'll make sure to put you on the short list. And we're going to have to do multiples because you can't really manage huge groups at once because of the travel and the staying. So it'll have to be groups of maybe four or five people, maybe six at most. But when we do this, my sort of core ethos with this is that we are not going to either A, just go and get the experience because I don't like the idea of impoverotourism where people go and experience poverty and come back and say, oh my goodness, I feel so much better about being American. That's not the point. And then secondly, I don't want to go and build things for them because that's not what we're there to do. We are there to support them in building their country. To me, that's the right thing to do because for a lot of reasons, politically, emotionally, morally, for them, they need to be the ones who do it. And that's going to have them feeling the most involved rather than having another aid organization coming in and building. So even when I say building these buildings, I'm not saying having crews go down where the Americans are going to be the ones swinging the hammers. When we build the buildings, there's going to be a funds piece and there's going to be a advisory and support and education piece. That's what we're going to be doing there is providing that rather than swinging the hammers. I think the best thing right now is say, stay tuned to Brian. You know where to find him and you will see as this progresses. And I just have to say, I'm so impressed and humbled and feel enriched by working with you and especially with the work you're doing here. So it was just amazing. And God's hand that brought us together a couple of years ago, I think it's only been a couple of years. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for your support. Thank you for your kind words through all of this. It's been a wild ride. I'm not always the best friend through these things because I get involved in things and I'm not as accessible as I'd like to be at times. But thank you for being patient with me through this and also for giving me the chance to talk about this because I really, other than my social media, I really haven't talked about this publicly. I haven't talked about it on my podcast and I certainly will in the future. But thank you for being the first to reach out and give me the opportunity to speak more about it. You're very welcome. Any closing thoughts, Brian? Closing thoughts would be when you do things that serve other people, life makes a lot more sense. It just does. So I would encourage anybody, I'm not telling you to get involved with what I'm doing. It may be something that strikes a chord in you and you want to get involved, but no matter what, just do things that serve people with no agenda. And when you do that, man, it's just like everything becomes a lot more crystal clear. Yeah. We just chatted about that the other day, I think in a text message. Yeah. Thanks again, Brian Orr, for joining me here on the Building HVAC Science Podcast. And we hope all you listeners come back again to hear more about Brian and hear about the other things we'll be talking about in Building HVAC Science. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where we heard a lot about Brian's activities and efforts, educational work in Haiti. If you want to learn more or get involved, reach out to Brian at brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at HVACRschool.com to find out more about what he's doing there and if you'd like to get involved. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, please email me at bill at bluecollarroots.com. And let's also note that our podcast, Building HVAC Science, is part of the Blue Collar Roots Network, of which the HVACR School is also a part of. 
If some of the topics that we discuss require technical training, this one really didn't. Or if you're in the market for some of the tools or test instruments mentioned in the podcast, you can go to truetechtools.com and use the code HVACBS for a nice discount. And in full disclosure, I'm a co-owner of True Tech Tools. We want to thank you for listening today, and we'd like to encourage you to follow Building HVAC Science on Facebook or to subscribe to the podcast. Let's close with a quote. This one's from Bruce Lee. Always be yourself. Express yourself. Have faith in yourself. Do not go out and look for a successful personality and duplicate it. I think that's very true of Brian. Very unique gentleman. Thank you everyone for listening and look forward to having you hear us next time back on the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.